This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome back to Conflicted with me, Thomas Small, my wonderful co-host, Eamon Dean, and once again, with the now old friend of the show, Bora Sheban. Bora, you're almost part of the furniture here now. Yeah, exactly. I don't think I can escape this right now. <laughs> oh, yeah, he is part of the furniture right now because we're going to play lots of musical chairs today and he will be one of the chairs. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. In this episode, the third of our ever-growing series on the modern history of Yemen, dear listener, you can prepare for some pretty complicated games of political musical chairs. Uh, and thankfully, we have Barat here, whose first-hand expertise on the subject is really going to come into its own. Because today we're talking about the Arab Spring, a momentous event which we've discussed so many times on Conflicted, but one which had a really acutely destabilizing effect on Yemen. Barah's story is truly thrilling, evocative, an account of the hope and then the tragedy which befell his country back in 2011. And he was right at the center of all of it. Let's jump right back in. Now, normally on Conflicted, we look at grand spans of history, skipping through decades and even centuries in a single episode. But today, we're going to look at pretty much just one year, 2011, and what a year it was for Yemeni history. But, of course, before we get there, we do have to set the scene, which means we have to go back in time a little bit. In the last episode, we left the Yemeni president, Ali Abdullah Saleh, in the year 2010, having fought six wars against the Houthis. Now, I don't have to remind you who the Houthis are. They're an armed militant millenarian group of Shia persuasion, to some extent allied to Iran and Hezbollah, who, beginning in the early noughties, engaged in a series of wars with the Yemeni president, Ali Abdullah Saleh, based in Sana'a, the Yemeni capital. Ah, those are the Houthis. Like, I thought you were talking about, you know, a, a chain of restaurants in the U.S., like anywhere they, you know, the Houthis, where they have, you know, these, you know, skimpy, you know, clad girls. <laughs> like, you know, not, not, ho not Hooters, Eamon, ah, the Houthis. Ah, oh, okay, okay, okay. Sorry about that. <laughs> so, yes, thank you, uh, dear, dear co-host. Thank you for everything you bring to the program. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, we left Sala sitting at the top of his throne, feeling strong. However, to understand what happens next when the Arab Spring breaks out, we've got to look at the general political scene in Yemen in the years before that happened. And first of all, we're going to have to lay out for you the cast of characters, especially three main characters, three men who at that time sat at the top of Yemeni politics. And if you don't know who they are, then you won't understand anything that, that follows. And the first one, of course, about which we don't need to say that much, is the president himself, Ali Abdullah Saleh. Now, Saleh, you know, who came to power as the president of North Yemen in 1978, remained president when the North unified with the South in 1990, and then was the president when Yemen had a terrible civil war in 1994, after 94, had good standing, more or less, with his countrymen, but was overseeing a process whereby a, a greater uh, crony capitalist system was enriching people at the top of society. So one of those people at the top of society who was getting very rich indeed, and uh, whom we briefly mentioned in the previous episode, but who we'll have, we're going to go into a lot in this episode. He's a very important figure. He's the second main character of the episode. His name is Ali Mohsen Al-Ahmar. Now, dear listener, there are a lot of men in this story with the surname Al-Ahmar. <laughs> so I'm going to have to ask Bara and Ayman, if possible, to call Ali Mohsen Al-Ahmar Ali Mohsen. Okay, we're just going to note, we're going to refer to him as Ali Mohsen so as not to confuse the dear listener. As I said, we talked about him in the previous episode when we mentioned that he was an old school friend, really, a childhood friend of Ali Abdullah Saleh, the president. 
had with Ali Abdullah Saleh joined the military, become a military man, and remained his right-hand man throughout. And during the wars against the Houthis in the in the noughties, Ali Mohsen was sent by Ali Abdullah Saleh to prosecute that war against his enemies. And if you remember, we also mentioned that at the end of those six wars, after the Saudis had intervened, beginning an aerial campaign in, in northern Yemen to fight the Houthis, Ali Abdullah Saleh asked the Saudis to send their air force to bomb the position of Ali Mohsen, suggesting to Ali Mohsen, who uncovered this plot, that his old friend was trying to kill him. Now, that's where we left him at the end of last episode. But now, to get to know him a bit better, Barak Ali Mohsen, I mean, he's been around for decades in Yemen. Are Yemenis kind of aware of him in a big way? What would the Yemenis have thought about Ali Mohsen al-Ahmar, Ali Abdullah Saleh's right-hand man, big military man, the man with the Cartier glasses, you know, classic kind of Arab strongman vibe. <laughs> Are you saying I'm a strong man? I'm wearing uh, Cartier glasses. You know Cartier. That, right? <laughs> Amen. You know, I think you're the strongest of all the men. Thank you. Thank God someone recognizes it. <laughs> so Ali Mohsen al-Ahmar, he came into the public eye following two main events. The first one, if the listener would remember, is the fightings that happened in the 80s between the North Yemen and the socialists, in which Ali Abdullah Saleh was able to use his basically friends at the time in the military to uh, stabilize a lot of regions and districts in central Yemen. And the second time was following the 1994 war. He came out with a good reputation in being a uh, strong military commander, a strong military uh, strategist. And he is seen as a military man. He's first and foremost is a military man who is able, like Ali Abdullah Saleh, to establish a web of contacts with tribal figures and political figures. He is more like the Ali Abdullah Saleh, but behind the scenes. Now, another important thing about Ali Mohsen, and it, it came out of his fight in the 80s against Southern socialists who were fighting the North, is that in that fight against the socialists, the Muslim Brotherhood in Yemen, in North Yemen, was employed with great effect by Ali Mohsen. So Ali Abdullah Saleh had asked Ali Mohsen to be his liaison with Muslim Brotherhood elements in the society. And the political party that those elements were a part of, a political party called Islah. And I think for this story now, it's important to know that Ali Mohsen, Ali Abdullah Saleh's right-hand man, was his chief liaison with Al-Islah, a very important political party. Unlike what many people would suggest about Ali Mohsen, Ali Mohsen is not a member of the Muslim Brotherhood. And he's not ideologically driven by the relationship that he had established with the Muslim Brotherhood and the wider Islah party members. He is a military man, more of a person who had the ability to strike uh, tribal deals, but it happened that he was able to get closer and closer by the years to Al-Islah in general. Yeah, and Ali Mohsen, therefore, was really an arm of Ali Abdullah Saleh and an arm of the GPC, Ali Abdullah Saleh's party, although in typical Yemeni political fashion, everyone's dealing with everyone, you know, and, and that, that will become clear as we go on. I mean, Eamon, just to end this little discussion on Ali Mohsen, you said that, you know, because often in the Arab Spring era, Ali Mohsen was considered by some, you know, to be a kind of good guy in Yemen. But you told a funny, a funny story, well, I find it funny, about what the Houthis found in time when the Civil War broke out. They stormed Ali Mohsen's headquarters in Sana'a. Well, what did they find? This will just give you a sense that Ali Mohsen is no different from any other Arab strongman playing the game. Indeed, what they found... It's like the cave of Aladdin. The cave of wonders. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, open sesame. Except, you know, what they found, which is what is expected in Aladdin's cave. Mounds of gold, a huge room full of gold bars, each one 12 kg, you know, stacked all the way to the ceiling. And then next to it, you have massive amount of wads of hundred 
dollar bill cashed. And the other side of the cave, huge amount of weapons. And that shows you that he was a man who mastered the art of the stick and the carrot. He would buy loyalty or he will enforce it. So that's the second of our two main characters. We So far, we have Ali Abdullah Saleh, the president, and Ali Mohsen, his right-hand man, who in time he turns against and develops some kind of rivalry with. And as we leave Ali Mohsen, the last thing to stress is that at this time, in 2008, 2009, Ali Mohsen can command roughly one-third of the loyalty of the Yemeni army. So the third main character... <laughs> And eventually, these three guys are all going to be fighting each other on the streets of Sana'a. That's why we're setting it up. The third main character, whose surname is also Al-Ahmar, and we will use his surname when we call him <laughs> his name, Abdullah Al-Ahmar. He, along with his sons, form the kind of political leadership of the Hashid Tribal Confederation. We've mentioned this in previous episodes, the Hashid Tribal Confederation the largest confederation of tribes in Yemen. And therefore, Abdullah al-Ahmar, the head of this confederation, was very powerful. And I think maybe it's important at the outset to stress, Barah, that he was seen by Yemenis as a hero of the revolution that had overthrown the imamate in the 60s. So he considered himself to be something of like a the champion or the defender of the republic. Is that right? Yeah, so Abdullah bin Hussein al-Ahmar, he came into prominence in the 60s in the wars between the royalists and the republicans, and he decided to side with the republic and fought all the way, even when it was looking that the republic was going to fail. But then he played a very critical role into making or convincing the Saudi leadership to recognize the new republic. And that's why he became a very, very important, influential character, not just in his tribal areas, but even in Yemen in general. He became a very influential political figure as well. And then he became the speaker of the parliament. So in recognition to his influence and political stance in the political arena. So it's key to point out that Abdullah al-Ahmar and the Hashid Tribal Confederation in general was a main means whereby Saudi Arabia was able to exert political influence in Yemen. Now, before we move on from Abdullah al-Ahmar, I'm afraid that seemed quite straightforward, didn't it, dear listener? I'm afraid it gets a little bit more complicated because he, as Barat just said, was Speaker of the Parliament, Speaker of the House, if you like. He was also, and this is weird, the leader of this other party, Islah the big other party in Yemen. The GPC was Ali Abdullah Saleh's party. It is the ruling party of Yemen in that period. And Islah was the other party affiliated to some extent with the Muslim Brotherhood. So Abdullah al-Ahmar was the leader of that party, the minority party in parliament. And yet, because of his prominence, was speaker of the House of Parliament. Very strange, strange arrangement there. And even stranger... He had a number of sons, or he has a number of sons. I mean, in fact, we should be clear. He died in 2008. And when he died, the leadership of the Hashid Tribal Confederation fell to one of his sons, Sadiq. But now that son, which political party is he affiliated with? It's very confusing. Sadiq became the head of Islah. Ah, just like his father. So he became the head of Islah. I see. Exactly. Like It's like he inherited the, <laughs> the seat. <laughs> the crown. <laughs> yeah. But his sons were basically, he decided, he said, let's basically, you know, split the beans between everyone. Some of his sons, half of them went as parliament members on behalf of the GPC. <laughs> and the other half went as parliament members on behalf of Islah. And that tells you everything you need to know about Abdullah bin Hussein al-Ahmar. Okay, great. So now we've laid out the, the, the three main characters. The president, Ali Abdullah Saleh, his right-hand man turned rival, Ali Mohsen, and Abdullah al-Ahmar and his family who lead the Hashid Tribal Confederation and who is the head of the Islah party. Those three were like the triangle where the central state positioned itself. You have the military and you have the tribal component and the political institution. And so the three of them together in an oddly balanced way, while feathering their nests the whole time, were at the top of the Yemeni state. 
Now that brings us to the actual history. We're now going to be in 2006. We're going to talk about the presidential elections that happened in 2006. Remember at this stage, the Houthi wars are still going on, on and off. And yet the the constitution of the country calls for a, a round of presidential elections in 2006. What is key about this round of presidential elections, however, is it's the first time since he became president that Ali Abdullah Saleh faces an actual opponent, that in fact, the opposition party or parties put an actual viable candidate to stand against him. And not only that, Thomas, but it is an alliance of political parties. So Islah, who had been, if the listener, of course, would remember, would had fought the socialists in, in 1994, decided following the 2003 parliamentary elections to strike this joint opposition coalition between Islah from one side, you have the socialists and then the Nasserites and then smaller parties like including Al-Haq party, the Ba'athists and others to come together and they formed something called the Joint Meeting Parties, the JMP. Yeah, the JMP. Now, I I suspect that as this uh, narrative unfolds, we will be talking about Islah more than the JMP. And in fact, I want us to just keep talking about Islah to make it easier. But from that point onwards, from the formation of this JMP, this umbrella party, of which Islah was like the biggest and most important part, Islah is speaking on behalf of a very wide and strange coalition, political coalition, bringing together leftists, Islamists, uh, fascists, (laughs) nationalists, they're all together, unified mainly in their antipathy to the uh, GPC and Ali Abdullah Saleh. And it was more look, looking like it's a it's an opposition to Saleh attempt to concentrate power within his family. But the JMP, the importance of the JMP is that because of this strange coalition, the general message, the message that they were framing and they were putting forward in, in the presidential elections in 2006 and the years that followed became very appealing to the public. It's more of a national identity that Yemenis do recognize. And it doesn't have that either Islamist or just communist vibe to it. it it's a more of a mixture of Yemeni politics and Yemeni identity and what Yemenis can, can refer to. There was a, a sort of tension within Islam between the old guard and the new guard within Islam. So the old guard more, let's say, whether Muslim Brotherhood or not, more faithful to the original kind of vision of that party, and a new guard led by a woman, of all people, in a way, or she became the most prominent spokesperson for this new this new guard, Tawakal Karaman, who would go on to win the Nobel Peace Prize during the Arab Spring. Yeah, I mean, Tawakul Karman's uh, rose to prominence, strangely, around the same time. So 2006, a very interesting year. You have elections happening, but then you have those new, young, uh, fresh voices coming into the scene. If you mention Tawakul Karman to the public, the first thing they will think about her, she is the representative of the civil society. And then if you dig deeper, then you say, oh, and she is also a member of Islam. So in that 2006 presidential election, Saleh won sort of handily. He never really was not going to win. But nonetheless, he began to grow a bit nervous because he could see that his opponents, his political opponents were organizing. This is not really the way things should work in Ali Abdullah Saleh's Yemen. So he's beginning to feel like, hmm, something might might be wrong uh, here. Uh, And little did he know that something was going to become very wrong for him indeed. So in the the years following the 2006 elections, you know, things become a bit more tricky, both for Yemen and Ali Abdullah Saleh. So he has this JMP, this coalition, which are more like a national front really allied against him. They are appealing more and more to people like a young Barat Sheban <laughs> as their as their Islamist their Islamist rhetoric is being toned down. They're becoming more moderate. They're like the Tony Blair of Yemen. They're all smiles and they're, you know, they really want only the best for everyone. And at the same time, in the South, beginning in 2007, protests begin to break out amongst people who are agitating a little bit more and more for something like a southern separatism. More and more South Yemenis 
are angry about the situation, about their economic conditions, about the injustice or the economic injustice between North and South as they see it. So Saul is contending with those protests. In fact, he sends the military to crush the protests. And all the while, the Houthi wars are continuing. (laughs) Oh, not to mention, not to mention, Al-Qaeda marauding (laughs) in the Hadramaut in the east, causing terrorist attacks in the center. His troops are fighting Al-Qaeda in cooperation with the Americans and the Saudis and the Emiratis as they're all working together. I mean, Eamon, at this time in your professional career, Yemen would have been like an Al-Qaeda hotbed more than anything else. Indeed. Uh, At that time, uh, between 2004 all the way until 2009, there was the period of building up you know, Al-Qaeda in Yemen, because by 2004, the reality is that the failure of Al-Qaeda in uh, Saudi Arabia to make any headway prompted Al-Qaeda to shift a lot of the effort and the funding and all of that from Al-Qaeda in Saudi Arabia to Al-Qaeda in Yemen. And between 2006 and 2009, there was a lot of activities, but this is when Saleh looked at Al-Qaeda and, um, you know, found that the hyphen between AL and the Q is looking like a dollar sign. You know, it's like, (laughs) "Mm, yeah, this is how I can take lots of money, just like the Pakistani military. I can make lots of money just from the so-called war on terror. So he started arresting uh, Al-Qaeda members, put them in jail. And then this is where a musical chair, you know, game started with Al-Qaeda, where he will uh, capture some, put them in jail, allow them to escape, only to put others in jail and then allow them to escape. And the merry-go-round started like this. That's happening behind the scenes. In front of the scenes, though, there was a lot of violence, to the extent that in early 2010, both America and the UK had to close their embassies in, in Sana'a because of Al-Qaeda attacks. It was, it was a very bad period. Now, I guess, suppose on the upside for Saleh, At that time, the Saudis, having intervened in his sixth war with the Houthis, had moved forward efforts to stop those wars. And in June of 2010, the sixth war ended. And so maybe Saleh could be like, right, now I can I can kind of rest easy. The Houthis have been contained. Al-Qaeda is is actually my secret card against the Americans. Now I can get back to my first love myself (laughs) and and ensure that I can be president of Yemen for life. And more importantly, that when I die, my son, Ahmed Saleh, could become president after me. So he he wants to start a proper dynasty. And in 2010, he thinks this is going to happen. I still remember 2010, and I can always say to myself is, why couldn't he do things differently? Because in 2010, finally, the GPC leadership, kind of the establishment, decide that they need to hold talks with the JMP. The first idea say, we need to get the political house in order. They said, let's arrange for a national dialogue talks between all of the Yemeni political and tribal factions to set the scene for what does the political parties want, which is to reform both the electoral system and the electoral registry, which Saleh had been playing with. <laughs> it, was, it was a designed in a way that would make him on, 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 on the top of the seat every time. <laughs> so on paper, this is a perfectly legitimate ambition. Both the GPC and the JMP, the opposition coalition, they came together and they're like, let's sort out some of these political problems, these constitutional issues, you know, and Saul is like, okay, that's cool. <laughs> so he sends he sends his top advisor, Dr. Abdul Karim al-Iriani, who was before his foreign minister and he was the prime minister of Yemen, a very close advisor to him. And uh, he reached a deal with the JMP in which they would rearrange the political arena that would allow for the coming elections to be, let's say, a little bit more fair. Like no one expected that Saleh would be gone, (laughs) but they would expect that everyone would still have a bigger voice, at least in parliament. They would give more powers to the local authorities, so to ease the tensions in the southern provinces that are having protests, calling for secession, and so on. So trying to ease the tension that is happening. Sounds very grown up. This is what democratic politics are supposed to be like. Saleh's representative there, Al-Iriani, is like, cool, 
We'll make a deal. This sounds good. He goes back to his boss, Salah, and says, hey, good news, dude. I came up with this great deal with your with the opposition. What do you think? And Salah snapped at him. They had an argument. People who uh, were witness said that they Salah was cursing to the level that Al-Iriani felt insulted. He had to leave the country. He had to go and stay in Spain in protest of Salah basically humiliating him and not allowing him to honor the deal that he had made with the uh, with the opposition. And Saleh, out of all times, he picked the end of 2010 as the right moment to introduce constitutional amendments. <laughs> it's funny, you know, it's clear now from history that Saleh was all the while becoming more dictatorial, more paranoid, more confident, though, at the same time, alienating all the people closest to him. And yet he chooses that time above all to overplay his hand in a big way. And, and looking over at, at Egypt, where his old sort of buddy Mubarak had just won <laughs> this sweeping re-election, you know, to the presidency forever. He was like, great, I'm going to I'm going to announce an early presidential election. Oh, by the way, I'm going to change the constitution, meaning I can be president for life. I'm not ever going to uh, say that my son, uh, Ahmed, won't follow me. He's feeling super confident. And then a guy in Tunisia sets himself on fire. And that's where we're going to leave it now. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, and when we come back, <laughs> we're going to see how that poor soul in Tunisia lit a political fire that burned its way to Yemen very quickly and would eventually leave Ali Abdullah Saleh himself covered in burns. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Right, we're back now. 2011, we're in the big year of Baraz, proper eyewitness of modern history unfolding. It's going to be, it's, I just love this story so much. Dear listener, you're in for a treat. Baraz, just to give us a sense, before the Arab Spring arrives in Yemen, what are you up to and how politically kind of motivated or, or interested are you at that time? It's funny because it's, um, it's a merge of many different things. So I'm very much politically aware because if you've been involved in civil society in Yemen, like I was, I started to get engaged in civil society activities really from 2006 while I was starting in university. So what happens is you have an active, dynamic uh, civil society that are meeting, that are talking, and you can, even if you're doing social activities like myself, you're doing charity work, you cannot escape the political discussion that is happening in, uh, in in Yemen. And you have those rising stars that uh, are coming to the scene, people like Tawakkul Karman, and one of the many sons of Abdullah Lahmar, who is the leader of Islah and the head of the <laughs> Hashid Confederation tribes. His name is Hamid Al-Ahmar. He is this rising figure who backed the opposition candidate in 2006, and he becomes very openly critical of Ali Abdullah Saleh, calling Ali Abdullah Saleh out on public to step down and to run uh, elections, calling Saleh to actually remove his sons and nephews from the military uh, positions that they are in. So he's he's making he's making headways. He's making a lot of noise at, at that time. And this is just to make the, the listener uh, understand that it, before the Arab Spring came, in the months preceding the Arab Spring in Yemen, there was already a political ferment there. Protests were happening. Outspoken, powerful figures were calling on Saleh to change. And there you were, Bara, finishing <laughs> your last final exam at university, I think. Isn't that right? When in February 2011, you got a message. Exactly. It was literally my final exam. I was handing over my final exam. I was trying actually to go through the paper as fast as I can. 
And then I suddenly receive a message. I, I knew members of the students' union who were by that time organizing, but no, actually in big numbers. They're organizing protests, like small protests. But in that day, a friend of mine sends me a message and say, where are you? We need everyone to come to the front gate of Sana University right now. I remember I handed over my... Uh, <laughs> my paper exam. And I literally came out rushing from college. And he's telling me, we are being surrounded by security forces. The security forces are surrounding us and we need as much people as you can bring. And we literally have those group of students moving from one faculty to another, from one college to another, calling on students to come and join, come and join, come and join. And what started as maybe it was a hundred, maybe even less than that, by the front gate of Sana'a University, it was literally thousands, thousands of young students in one voice, overwhelming really, the uh, security forces that have thought that actually they have surrounded those protesters in Sana'a University. And amongst them was Tawakkul Karman. I remember seeing her protesting, but then she was like kind of relieved that those thousands of students had arrived and made basically what was the beginning of the Arab Spring in Yemen. So you were among them. How did the security apparatus respond to the sudden arrival of thousands of students to, to sort of buttress the, the protesters that were already there? Well, as you can imagine, Thomas, uh, security forces in Yemen do not behave. <laughs> they did two things. They unleashed literally, I would say, thugs. I mean, they're literally security members, but in plain clothes, to start attacking the protesters. And then they would start shooting. I remember that day two people died instantly, literally in front of us. And a number of them got, a uh, number of um, our fellow students got injured. We had to rush them to hospital. But the mood started to change. People were getting angry as they're getting ready for what they would, uh, what they know is now a beginning of a, uh, an, an Egypt style, a Tunisian style uh, revolution. And it had people from all walks of life, all political streams. It doesn't matter like where do you come from or political differences that you had in the past. Everyone was just united in that, in that moment. And I could tell you, it was magical. To say the least, the feeling that you belong suddenly to something, to a, a democratic civil movement uh, that is much bigger than just yourself. Much bigger, too, because quite quickly it, it spread throughout Yemen. I mean, immediately people heard about what had happened in the capital, Sana'a, and in other cities, provincial cities, big cities, Ta'az, Aden even. The spark is lit. Exactly, exactly. And what ignited it even further is when Hosni Mubarak, the president of Egypt, stepped down from power on the 10th of February 2011. Immediately after that, protesters came out in Taiz. This is the central city in Yemen that has, that is kind of the intellectual hub, the cultural capital of Yemen, where a lot of, um, has a lot of uh, graduates and very educated population, came out and occupied the streets. Now, you're a group of young activists. I suppose we could describe you as sort of liberal left activists. You realize, oh, my God, revolution is breaking out. How do you sort of organize such a thing? What, what's the next step that you take? It was a strange, I would say, complicated way of bringing many, many people from different backgrounds together. But eventually it came out to something called the Organizing Committee. It was those people like Tawakkul Karman and her fellow leftists and uh, lefty activists who have been protesting since 2006 and, and have been organizing and mobilizing, saying we need to come up with this entity that is going to act like it's literally an organizing committee for this revolution. And at this point, the higher committee of the revolution makes an absolutely disastrous mistake. I'm usually, Thomas, being asked usually by my friends, do you regret going out when I see things have, how and how they unfolded in, in, in Yemen? And I usually don't have a lot of regrets because I do feel things would have played out this way anyway. But there is one big regret is one of the members of the organizing committee 
He's a hardcore left communist, very known to Yemenis. His name is Ahmed Saif Hashid. <laughs> now, Eamon, I'm, I'm sure you want to tell Barat, what were you thinking trusting <laughs> such a man? <laughs> oh, yeah, you can never, ever, ever trust a commie. He should know this by now, Barat. <laughs> <laughs> well, I knew that, Eamon, but it was, it was far too late. So this communist uh, stands up and he says, I got an idea. He basically said, like, listen, guys, what we need is something more radical. We need the people who have been fighting the establishment and not only fighting, they have been even picking arms to fight the regime in Sana'a. This regime needs to collapse to the ground and no one is better, more fit to do this than the Houthis, oh. those rebels in the north of Yemen who have been fighting the, the, the Yemeni government for six rounds of conflict and they're not afraid to fight, to, to fight again. And they go on and meet this guy who uh, basically calls himself, I mean, he was, in, in, in fact, the representative of Abdul Malik al-Houthi in Sana'a. Abdul Malik al-Houthi, the leader of the Houthis, a young man who had uh, taken over the leadership after his brother was assassinated by Ali Abdullah Saleh. Abdul Malik al-Houthi had a representative in Sana'a, and this is the man that the executive committee goes to get in touch uh, with the Houthis for them. I can only, Thomas, apologize to my fellow Yemenis because this guy is also happens to be a relative of mine. I'm so sorry, dear oh. Yemenis. <laughs> <laughs> and they meet with him and the Houthis instantly agree. And they say, yeah, this is a good idea. We're going to actually join this revolution. And then the organizing committee makes some precursors. They say, well, you're not allowed to carry out weapons in the protest. You need to basically behave <laughs> because this is not going to be an armed conflict. This is just going to be a, a civil movement. And they agree. They say we are all up for liberal democracy. <laughs> so the Houthis join up. You yourself, as you told me, went down and did some negotiation uh, with the Southern movement, and they sort of agreed in a in a half and half way to participate in the revolution through the organizing committee. I did it even without a hesitation. I took myself, and it was li literally me doing it on a voluntary basis, traveling to Aden, and all what I was attempting, saying, let's meet all of those people from all of those squares that have been already protesting against Saleh, and let's get them all to agree on what we have come up with, with in, in, in Sana'a, which is the charter of the revolution. This is kind of the main goals and objectives of the revolution. Although the Southern movements were like saying like, well, we don't agree with all of this, but we'll join you for now. So you have the Houthis on side. You sort of have the Southern uh, movement on side. Now, as for Islah, as we said before, it was already kind of split into two. Uh, between a, a new guard of younger activists, uh, of whom Tawakal Karman was the sort of leader. They were fully on side the revolution. But what about the old guard of Islah? They were still in, in, in talks with Saleh. They wanted to get a deal in which he would agree to remove or retract the constitutional amendments that would allow him, you know, that would allow him to, to, to run for life. So the old guard in Islah is in negotiations with Ali Abdullah Saleh. And just like he always would uh, when negotiating with Islah, he sent his right-hand man, even though a year before he had tried to assassinate him, but that's neither here nor there, this is Yemen. He sent Ali Mohsen to deal with Islah. And Ali Mohsen goes to a meeting with the old guard. And Ali Mohsen manages to, basically he succeeds into reaching a form of an agreement. He says, okay, we're going to have elections happen according to a new voter registry and also a new electoral system. And we want Saleh to come out and promise that his son won't run for elections, so he's not going to be the successor. And in exchange, Islah, but not just Islah, just to be fair, all of the uh, political parties will start calling on their members to remove them from the square. So he kind of, Ali Abdullah Saleh felt the really engine behind this big movement in the, <laughs> in the streets of Sana'a are the political parties. So if I just get to them to agree that they remove just their members, all what they would left there would be just a few people like me <laughs> who they can deal with then later on easy. But he needs to remove that component. And what's making Ali Mohsen's job of, of negotiating with the opposition parties easier is that a lot of the old guard establishment in the GPC, in Islah, in the other parties, 
are particularly worried about the involvement of the Houthis in the protests. The Houthis, they had been the big bad guys in Yemeni politics for a decade. The central government had fought six wars with them. They seemed to be crazy religious fanatics allied to Iran and Hezbollah. So the political establishment were like, oh my God, the Houthis are involved now in the protests. We really need to do something about it. And Ali Mohsen came back to the establishment with this plan. Now, Ali Abdullah Saleh's family, though, like his son Ahmed, who was being primed to succeed him as president, what was what was their advice to the president? His family members were not thrilled by the plan because they felt it's a plan that is leading them to lose influence in the military and political scene in general. And they basically advised Saleh that you need to exert your dominance. You need to show... Uh, these people that you're not afraid to use force when necessary. You need to start, you know, banging some heads. Show them who's. I love it. <laughs> show them who's boss. <laughs> I love to imagining this scene. It's like something out of Succession or something. You just imagine the young son being like, "No, no, you can do it, Dad. You can do it, Dad. Be that Arab strong man that you are. Kill those bastards who are calling for your overthrow." And Ali Mussan walks into this scene saying, "Hey." I got a deal. I made a deal with the with everyone. We've got this deal. So what I hear from people who were close to Saleh at the time, they said that Ali Abdullah Saleh was kind of split in this scene between those two. He 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 had promised Ali Mohsen that he would stick to this plan and he would make the all the necessary and required announcements to ease the detention. But at the same time, he's kind of giving a blind eye to for example, his nephews, his sons, of what what are their plans to 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 how they're going to deal with those protesters. And so he he's in this position between between those two, let's say. And later on, when I was playing a bigger role, I did meet Ali Mohsen and he told me that he had managed to get Ali Abdullah Saleh to agree to his plan. So the, the plan in which electoral reform would would happen, uh, and Saleh would promise the public, he would come out and say in no uncertain terms that he would not anoint his son Ahmed president. This is the plan that Ali Mohsen had brokered with the opposition and which, according to what he told you, Saleh agreed to. Exactly. Which brings us to the fateful day of dignity, as it's known in Yemeni history, the 18th of March, 2011. Now, what I want to say is, imagine if someone is in my position. So I don't know what's happening in the political scene. We know they're talking, but I'm in the square. We finish Friday prayers, and we've seen that the security apparatus and the security forces had are trying to surround the square. And they've built kind of bricks around the square. They're trying to contain the, the, square, <laughs> the square from growing even, even bigger. And then suddenly after the Friday prayer, a big fire, giant fire, because they've burned tires, basically we see them go up and a huge black smoke is covering the square. And immediately after, after the Friday prayer, we hear snipers shooting into the protesters from, we don't know from which direction. Haram, unbelievable. It's Friday just after the prayer. Exactly, exactly. And it was a shocking scene people are still unable to grasp what's actually happening. And then we see protesters starting to fall, mainly from the side where the fire is coming from. So we see more and more people falling. I still can't take the images from my head even up until today. Because you're there. You, you, I mean, you can hear gunshots. You, you see gunshots near you. I mean, you're in the thick of it. And I can tell you for anyone, it's a miracle of how, how you can walk and then by mere luck that you're not shot on, on, uh, on that day. You walk a little bit and then you see someone who is just standing next to you fall. And then you move a little bit. You think you're hiding. And then suddenly the person who's hiding next to you starts to fall. And then uh, you start seeing people rushing people into the what we had in the square called the field hospital. It's basically uh, the, the doctors who volunteered to look after the injured protesters. And then one after the other, one after the other, the numbers of bodies starting to pile up in that field hospital. And I still remember in one place in the square, there was this kind of pool of blood in the middle of the street. It basically had came from the blood of the protesters and coming together 
with water and like you could see it's red, it's blood and people feel, I mean, horrified, but also become very, very angry about what happened. In that day, we would later uh, figure out that there was instantly 48 people died. And later on, the number would uh, go up to 58. And more uh, approximately 200 people got uh, got injured, many of them with uh, permanent injuries. I still remember the kid who I, I, I kept on visiting even in the years uh, later. He lost both of his eyes in the shooting that day. Uh, can you imagine a young, young kid losing both of his eyes because he was just at the wrong place at the wrong time? <sighs> Terrible. I mean, the whole country must have been in shock because Yemen was a democracy. It was a republic. It had had elections. It had had political parties. There was a political process. This sort of thing wasn't really supposed to happen. And that angered the population. What started, I mean, you could easily say maybe tens of thousands of protesters, more and more ordinary now citizens, not just members of parties and civil society activists, come to join the protesters. So the the days that followed, the number of people joining grew significantly. And then you immediately saw people from Saleh's own party, the GPC, starting to resign from his party in protest of what they viewed Saleh was doing, a brutal crackdown on, on, on protesters. One of the guys who was particularly angry about what happened was Ali Mohsen longtime friend of Salah, his right-hand man, he goes straight to Salah and, and confronts him. What the fuck has just happened? What have you done? Salah basically ignored him that day. He said, I don't know who, 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 uh, who did this. Everyone around in that room knew who did this, but no one wanted to actually admit to the face of Salah that actually you screwed up big time. And Ali Mohsen gave him an ultimatum. You have three days to come up with answers and to actually prosecute the people who uh, who did this. He must have thought, Ugh, I've really overstepped uh, the mark here because uh, immediately members of the JPC, his political party, began resigning. And then three days later, on the 21st of March, the big, <laughs> the big fish, he also defects exactly. to the protest. So Ali Mohsen makes an announcement saying that following the events of the 18th of March, he can no longer serve with Saleh, and he announced joining the young, peaceful protesters. And with that, at that time, you could say roughly between 20 to 25 percent of the military is under his command. So with that, you have also 20 to 25 percent of the military defecting to the side of the protesters. Anyone who has followed what, what went on in like Syria during the Arab Spring would know that as soon as Ali Mohsen defects to the side of the protesters and takes with him not only his whole like network within the GPC and you know all the political power brokers that that are, are loyal to him but 25% of the army this really means the army has split uh, and when that happens in a revolution you are hightailing it to civil war i mean Ayman, you must have thought oh god ali mohsen has taken his 25% of the army to the protesters. This can't be good in the long run. There were already fears that Yemen is descending into civil war, and that is why there were so much noise within the uh, Gulf capitals, the GCC capitals. And you can tell the nervousness. I had friends at the time who were advising the uh, secretary general of the GCC, which is based in Riyadh. And they were talking about you know, millions of refugees pouring into uh, Saudi Arabia and from there into the rest of the GCC if uh, Yemen descended a civil war. That's foreshadowing another decision just around the corner. Before we get there, though, I just want to briefly say that the third of our three main characters, the Hashid Tribal Confederation, and at this time, the head of that confederation, the son of Abdullah al-Ahmar, Sadiq al-Ahmar. He's been mediating between all the groups. And all the while, his brother, the very rich, the very outspoken, the very powerful Hamid, you mentioned him, was saying, no, no, we've got to get rid of Saleh. He must step down, which means that Sadiq and the Hashid tribal confederation also choose to join the revolution. 
uh, at the end of March. Yeah, as a whole. I mean, the whole Hashid Confederation uh, came to the square with their tribal leaders and then with them also their their members. I remember the tribes coming in and then, then saying, we're going to put our weapons back at home and join this uh, join this revolution. So you have you have communists, other leftists, young liberals like yourself, Muslim Brotherhood members, members of the army loyal to Ali Mohsen, tribal factions loyal to the Al-Ahmar family and Houthis. <laughs> now <laughs> and this and this bara is where the story becomes particularly well I think, you know, if if you have a comic, if you're of a comic frame of mind, it's it's almost funny because after fighting the Houthis for six, you know, in six wars, after seeing the Houthis join the protests calling for his overthrow, Ali Abdullah Saleh makes a very, very unexpected decision. Barat, what was that <laughs> unexpected decision? Ali Abdullah Saleh decides that he's going to strike a deal with the Houthis in the north. <laughs> so Saleh makes the decision of handing over the province of Sada, the northern province that is bordering Saudi Arabia, to the Houthis. Now, it's important for the listener to understand that despite six wars, the Houthis were not in control of the province. They had control of some districts, but they couldn't control the province. The military was still there. Only in 2011, and literally in March 2011, he decides to remove parts of the military from Sada and hand it over to the Houthis, the weapon depots, the bases, all to the Houthis. And the Houthis strike a deal with a notorious arms trafficker, I mean, an arms dealer, his name is Farah Smanna. And they say, listen, we're going to appoint you <laughs> as our governor in Sada. And Farah Smanna is a notorious figure. He's actually on the UN blacklist for supplying al-Shabaab in Somalia <laughs> with weapons. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. And meanwhile, the Houthis are just moving in to bases and finding armaments and material, which the Yemeni army have, have just retreated from, handing them over, and slowly begin making their way south, coming into conflict with Ali Mohsen's troops, and then the al-Ahmar tribal troops. <laughs> Salah's enemies in the square in Sana'a are being attacked by the Houthis coming down from the north. And this had been facilitated by Saleh. Exactly, because what a better way to make my, <laughs> my new enemies now in Sana'a busy is make them involved in another conflict in the north. So both the Hashid confederation, the Hashid tribes with Al-Ahmar family are fighting now the Houthis because now they're coming into their own territory, into their own tribal district. And at the same time, fighting the military bases and the uh, military camps of uh, Ali Mohsen in the north of Yemen. Now, Eamon, do you think it's safe to say at this stage that the Houthis are already receiving advice from Iran, from Hezbollah? I mean, what's interesting about this move is it echoes things that Hezbollah had been doing in Lebanon in the previous five years, ever since the war between Israel and Lebanon in 2006, which, dear listener, you will have heard about uh, in our series on, on, on Hezbollah. Do you think that there's a link there? Well, Thomas, as I said in the last episode, you know, there is no doubt in my mind and the minds of many people who are in the know uh, that all the intelligence indicated that Hezbollah and IRGC operatives were there with the Houthis from 2002 onward. And by 2014, you know, the scene was set. You know, they have already trained enough people. They have already amassed enough weapons. And the golden opportunity presented itself when the master chess player made the fatal, fatal, fatal move by aligning with them. So they decided, okay, Ali Abdullah Saleh, he's the donkey that we're going to ride into Sana'a. And that's exactly what happened. The Houthis then start to present themselves as more of a political entity. They then change their name because people just refer to him as, as the Houthis. Now they change their name into Ansarullah. Yeah, to copy Hezbollah, basically. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, Ansarullah means God's helpers or God's supporters. And Hezbollah means God's party. And then, you know, they start to establish their media channel in an attempt to mimic the Al-Manar channel, Hezbollah's channel. 
And then they start to present themselves to the young protesters as we are a new, fresh political entity. And we advise all of you, like, come and join us. We're going to make something uh, that bring everyone together. Well, at the time that uh, the Houthis are rebranding themselves and making their way slowly but surely southward with their troops, Sana'a is now split between the forces loyal to Ali Mohsen, the Republican Guard loyal to Ali Abdullah Saleh and especially his son Ahmed, and the Hashid Tribal Confederation fighters who were now armed and fighting was breaking out. Now, you must have known, Bara, that things had got out of control. Already by that point, you must have thought, this revolution has turned into a civil war, and the main partisans in that war are the same old political figures that have been dominating the scene. They're just fighting with each other. So by that time, we're now talking April 2011, fighting and clashes are erupting in the capital. But we're still trying to say like, no, this is not a civil war. It still can be contained and we can still get things in order. And a mediation happens where Saleh sends a tribal mediation to meet Sadiq al-Ahmar. In that meeting, I still remember like suddenly, uh, because the, by the way, the house of Sadiq al-Ahmar wasn't very far from the square and we hear a huge explosion. And Soon enough, we would discover that actually rockets were fired at the house exactly at the same time when people were meeting. So Saleh just wanted to know, is Sadiq al-Ahmar and his brothers <laughs> are in the room? Are they actually there? So he can ensure that actually if then he would claim, oops, a rocket was fired by mistake and, <laughs> you know, happened to kill the tribal leadership of Yemen. <laughs> Well, luckily, Sadiq al-Ahmar did not die. Saleh failed to kill him, but many other members of the tribal leadership did die, and ordinary tribesmen were killed. This did not <laughs> this did not dampen the tensions that now exploded really into the open. There was proper fighting now. Yeah. I mean, Sana'a was split between uh, those three factions. You can go from one checkpoint to another. You know, you have to be extremely careful, but we are still trying to go to the square because this is where we think the revolution started and should continue. And soon enough, we start to realize actually the fighting is not just in Sana'a, it's now happening even between Hashid and the some members now of Islah in the provinces around Sana'a, like Al-Jawf, like, you know, the neighboring provinces of the capital. Harder to deny that a civil war was breaking out by that point, I guess, Barat. Actually, we were in denial, Thomas. You would be surprised <laughs> the <laughs> the level of optimism we uh, we had. So what we we did, being like you know, I would say the liberal idiots that we are, we say we're gonna send a mediation from the youth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Barat, it's it's sweet actually. It's sweet, <laughs> and we're gonna you know we're gonna make everyone agree that we need to now focus on the revolution and mainly between the Houthis, because now the Houthis are with us in the square. I know them. And, you know, we know we know members of Islah. So we can actually get those guys to agree. And actually, we succeeded in actually convincing them not to raise their weapons in the square. We can actually convince them not to fight in the deserts of Al-Jawf and in the mountains of Sada. Well, did you convince them? Well, um, they gave us a lot of uh, sweet talk, and we came back feeling uh, proud as ever, but nothing nothing changed. Fighting would erupt the following day. <laughs> nothing changed. Well, one guy who was feeling proud as ever was Ali Abdullah Saleh. That is, until the fateful day of the 3rd of June, 2011. A Friday, just like the Day of Dignity, when his troops fired on you, Bara, and your fellow protesters. On the 3rd of June... Saleh was in his palace mosque finishing his prayers when something happened. So I still remember that Friday, we suddenly heard the news that an explosion had happened in the president's mosque in the presidential palace, and a number of people are dead. No one knows what happens, but news started and rumors started to fly that actually not just a number of people are dead, that Saleh himself has been killed in this explosion. And 
the news quickly uh, fly, not just on Yemeni news channels, but also goes to international uh, media outlets. And none of us knew, actually, if he was still alive or dead. Now, Eamon, you're watching the international news, I bet. You're thinking, oh, wow, President Ali Abdel has been killed. And were you aware quite quickly what had actually happened? Did you learn quite quickly what had actually happened? Well, I mean, because of course, like, and I mean, I was following uh, in the news like everyone else. So then I asked my friends at the general secretariat, I asked, what happened? I mean, how, how was he targeted? And they said that the early indications that it was a ATGM. ATGM is an anti-tank guided missile, a cornet. And I was thinking, my God, lots of people must have been burnt inside because I'm aware that, you know, anti-tank guided missiles have shape charges, you know, basically that concentrate the huge amount of heat into a very small direction in order to melt armor. And I experienced before, you know, the heat from an RPG that actually hit a Russian-built room in Afghanistan that I was in, and it was part of my training. But apart from the dizziness I experienced, the heat inside was really awful. It's like as if, you know, you open an oven, you know, when you are cooking a pizza, and immediately it comes into your face, all this heat. That's how I felt. And this is just a small, you know, rocket from an RPG. That would have been a very bad experience for everyone inside. So I was wondering, how did he survive? And did he survive intact or not? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that heat is what enveloped Ali Abdullah Saleh. Well, the question really is, who fired the rocket? <laughs> The real answer is many of us are still asking this question until today because everyone, and I mean literally mean everyone, has denied responsibility. And even the Yemeni uh, prosecutors had failed to convict uh, anyone. But Eamon, you have, you have your suspicions. It's very clear that according to some uh, people in the intelligence agencies in some Gulf countries, without naming anyone, that it was Ali Mohsen. Ali Mohsen never forgave and never forgot that Ali Saleh gave his coordinates to the Saudis uh, in the last war with the Houthis in order for the Saudis to drop a bomb on him, thinking he's a Houthi commander. Uh, you know, so the biggest suspicion was on him. So Ali Mohsen, let us say, was trying to get his revenge, but he failed because despite that extreme heat, Ali Abdullah Saleh survived. Yeah. He was immediately evacuated, airlifted to Riyadh, <laughs> where he was installed at King Faisal Specialist Hospital and was brought back to life. And I say that quite literally almost. I mean, a few months later, he appeared finally on television from Saudi, and it was like looking at Frankenstein's monster. The man was covered in black charred flesh. It was it's a terrifying vision. Indeed. And meanwhile, the protesters are being gunned down by Saleh security apparatus and let's say mainly his sons and nephews. And kind of the general feeling in Yemen is that Saleh that old magnanimous figure who's wise, who's always able to trick his way and maneuver, has lost it. To dance on the head of snakes? Exactly, exactly. Had lost it. He's unable to do this. And the people, the public, are feeling it's getting bloodier and more and more innocent victims and innocent uh, young people are being gunned down in the streets of Sana'a and Taz and Aden and, and so on. Innocent victims, Barat, like yourself. You know, their Salah is in, in Riyadh recovering. But clearly, his followers or his, you know, his sons and nephews, as you say, on the ground are out to get revenge. They turn with great ferocity on the revolution, on the protesters. And a week after his attempted assassination, you are abducted by Saleh loyalists. Yeah, I was abducted in a checkpoint that belonged to the Central Security Forces. That's these forces run by his nephew. And, you know, I'm still having issues in my uh, shoulder up uh, up until until today from the beating that I received oh, uh, that night. I was covered in a black bag, put in the back of a van, and it was, I think, around 11 p.m. at night and beaten constantly 
all the way until the morning. And then they even, you know, when they dropped me, it's not like they even pretended that it wasn't them. They didn't want to, they didn't take any of my belongings, any of the money that I had, nothing. They wanted me to know that actually it was them. We did this to you. <laughs> wow, that's just terrible. Uh, you know, those of us in the West who engage in politics, we don't usually have to face that kind of mistreatment from the people we are protesting against. Okay, that summer of 2011, Saleh is abroad. He's being treated in hospital in Riyadh. Meanwhile, the GCC, led by Saudi, are trying to cobble together some kind of solution for Yemen. This would be known as the GCC Initiative. And um, while on the ground in Yemen, the fighting uh, between the different factions is growing bloodier and bloodier. And in September, there was a particular three days of tremendous bloodletting, and everyone's incredibly worried that they have another Syria on their hands in Yemen and they, or another Libya on their hands in Yemen. They need to put a stop to it. So the GCC has developed this initiative working with the EU and the US and the UN, and they're putting pressure on Saleh there in hospital in Riyadh to sign it, to step down, to agree to a planned and ordered transition in Yemen. And he, he agrees in theory, but then he asks, guys, you know what, I... I'm really, I need to, I just need a break. <laughs> I need a holiday. I want to go to Ethiopia. Can I? And he did. He actually took his plane and on the way to Ethiopia, he ordered the pilot to redirect the, the plane all the way back into Sana'a. And that made the GCC countries, especially Saudi Arabia, very, very angry. They felt this is actually going to, you know, it's going to slip easy into, a, into a, uh, a civil war that is beyond the control of, of anyone, really. I mean, Eamon, how would the Saudi leadership uh, at that time, uh, King Abdullah was quite unwell during those years. What would the Saudi leadership, you know, King Abdullah himself, how would they have responded to that kind of trick. What I understood from the assistant of the uh, Secretary General of the GCC that King Abdullah uttered the word Hasis in describing what uh, Saleh did. So he described him as Hasis. And Hasis in Arabic is the, imagine the combination of the words bastard, traitor, and, you know, contemptible, you know, and, uh, you scumbag. know, scumbag, yeah, all together. Well, so they're on the ground in Yemen amongst the liberal youth protesters. They are getting closer to the Houthis, who they remain convinced will be their allies in the attempt to create a new, more democratic Yemen. Meanwhile, Saleh, back in Sana'a, is being pressured more and more by Saudi Arabia and the GCC to sign the GCC initiative, which finally that November he does sign. Now, that means he's, he agrees to step down from power, to hand power over to his vice president, Abrabu Mansur Hadi, who will become president, and a new national dialogue conference will be uh, established to create a new constitution for Yemen and to bring all the parties to one big table so that a peaceful and prosperous Yemen can be hashed out. Now, this is where we're going to end this episode, Barat on the cusp of a new era, a glorious era of peace for Yemen in which you yourself would play a role because you were a part of the National Dialogue Conference. And I can promise the listener, actually, it's going to even get more thrilling from now onwards. <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned, dear listener, when we're back. Next time, Barat will continue his thrilling tale of the insider view of politics in Yemen as civil war uh, broke out in that country. See you then. A reminder that you can follow the show over on Facebook and Twitter at MH Conflicted. And for a deeper dive into all the subjects we talk about here on Conflicted, head over to Facebook and search Conflicted Podcast Discussion Group. There you will find other fans of the show engaging in heated debates, enlightening conversations, and just generally geeking out over Conflicted-related topics. Conflicted is a Message Heard production. This episode was produced and edited by Harry Stott. Sandra Ferrari is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Matt Huxley and Tom Biddle. <laughs>